Welcome to Liquid Church Media. The message you're about to enjoy was originally delivered live at Liquid Church by Pastor Tim Lucas. For more content, log on to liquidchurch.com or visit one of our campuses in the New Jersey metro area. Liquidchurch.com, where truth is relevant and grace wins. All right, welcome everybody to the dramatic conclusion of our series, Thrones. I'm Pastor Tim, and today we kind of come to the final episode, the of the war, the battle we've been studying between two Old Testament kings on one side, King Saul versus King David. Have you enjoyed the series so far? Has it been helpful to you? I'm hoping, yeah, good, I'm glad. I'm hoping that it's helpful to you. It's changing the way that you think about or even handle broken relationships in your life, whether it's at work or at school or even home or at church. Uh, On Tuesday, something funny kind of happened. I was meeting a fellow pastor for breakfast, so we went to a local diner, and as I slid into the booth, the waitress walked over, and actually she's somebody who's a personal friend. She came to Liquid about two years ago, gave her life to Jesus Christ, was baptized here. Now she leads a service team. She attends one of our campuses, and uh, you'd, you'd recognize her. And it was so fun, kind of fun because I said, hey, how you doing? And she kind of looked sideways, you know, in the diner, like, who's listening? And I said, what's going on? And she said, Saul is throwing spears in the kitchen. <laughs> and I knew exactly what she meant. She was talking about kind of, you know, a, a, a temperamental cook in the back kitchen who I know is kind of, you know, he's, you know he kind of bullies, you know, the waitress, come on, hurry up, you know, he uses foul language, kind of, kind of pressurized guy. And, uh, and, and I said, oh, I'm so sorry, you know, and it's funny, she goes, she goes, no, 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 she goes, wait, it's okay. And she holds out her waitress pad and she goes, I'm praying for him, I'm writing psalms. And I look at her little waitress pad and she has handwritten page after page after page of, oh, yeah, for her abusive boss. Lord Saul is throwing spears in the kitchen. Protect me from his negative spirit. Help me to be a positive influence. Help me to love him. And I trust you at all times. Page after page, she's just pouring out her heart to God, writing prayers on her waitress pad. How cool is that? Uh, guys, that is where faith is lived in the nitty gritty details of everyday life. That's the godly response that we learned from David, who poured out anytime our world gets touched by toxic people, people who don't live by the spirit of God, but actually live through the flesh. They rule through fear or intimidation. They're used to using sharp words to attack or or cut us down, or you're used to handling their abuse. They may insult us. They may attack us just like Saul did with David. And from his throne, Saul felt so threatened. He tried to nail David to the wall, but that doesn't just happen in throne rooms, does it? It happens in diners. (laughs) It happens in kitchens. It happens in boardrooms. It happens in cubicles Monday through Friday. And tragically, it happens in homes with believers. It happens in churches. How do you respond to an estranged spouse or or a business partner who's spreading lies or suing you when the desire to get even or strike back is very real? What we're learning is that suffering reveals who is really on the throne of our life, who controls us. Do we live by the spirit of God, the fear of God, or the fear of man? David lived by the fear of God. My sister was living by the fear of God at the diner. And what that means is when someone stabs you in the back or makes your life hell, David didn't strike back. What did he do? He found refuge in the Lord. He ran to the cave at Adulam. Last week, we saw how he prayed through his pain with God. See, in that cave, David wrote some of the rawest and richest hymns for the hurting that our broken world has ever known. Did you read any of them this week? I, I listed a few in your program last week. I heard from a number of you who read through some of the Psalms and you're like, man, God just spoke to me. I realize I'm not alone. 
That's why David was a man after God's own heart. Because when he was attacked unjustly, he actually withdrew inwardly. He took all of his fear, his anger, his depression, not to man's throne, but to the throne room of his Lord and Savior. He was utterly vulnerable, and God really brought healing to David's broken heart. Now, it took time. David was a fugitive. You may remember this. How many years was David on the run? Remember? Ten years, okay? You may be like, oh, Tim, I had a really tough week, you know, right? Or maybe you had a tough month, or you're like, the last 12 months have been the most turbulent of my life. David was in the desert for a decade, right? Before God put him on the throne, God led him to a cave, and he was a cave dweller before he was a king. And God lets his children sometimes go through a season of suffering. You're like, well, why would a loving God allow that? And the answer is to ensure that David never became King Saul II. God wanted to spare his people another tyrant on the throne. And so he enrolled David in the school of brokenness. That's what God will do sometimes in your life because God is looking for broken leaders to lead his people. What I mean by that is believers who aren't just strong or smart or talented, but humble, who are meek, who are aware of their weakness and actually dependent on God. And because of that weakness, they have compassion towards people who have been hurt or mistreated. That's the kind of king that David became, the greatest king Israel ever knew. In that cave, he drew men to him through compassion, not coercion, through his integrity, not through intimidation. 1 Samuel 22 said this last week, all those who were in distress or in debt or discontented gathered around David, and he became their commander. About 400 men were with him in that cave. In that decade, God was raising up an army around David. But again, his journey to the throne was not what you would expect, was it? I mean, you would expect a king to be crowned in a castle surrounded by royalty. But David is coronated in a cave, a broken king surrounded by a bunch of ragtag misfits. And it's true, two decades later, these guys, they would become David's mighty men of valor, a band of elite warriors who actually formed David's leadership council when he finally took the throne in Jerusalem. But you know what? Nobody knew it at the time. At the time, David was just on a cave, and they were like, I don't know if he's ever going to make it to the throne. And my guess is, at some point, David wondered, I think I'm going to die in this cave, surrounded by bitter people. (laughs) He must have thought at some point. But you know what? God had a divine destiny for David, and God has a divine destiny for you. God had a purpose for David's pain, and he does for your pain as well. If you are hurting today, I understand you may have gone through a season of loss. Maybe you've lost a spouse. Maybe you've lost a child. Maybe you have lost a job. Or there's a health crisis or loss or even a crisis of faith. Your heart may be hurting, but God is working on a second chance, even if you don't perceive it. Redemption is God's favorite song. Amen? God brought David comfort in that cave. He brought David company, and as you're going to see right now, one crazy twist. This is where we pick up our story today, 1 Samuel chapter 24. So if you want to open your Bibles, all our campuses, this is episode 3. In your notes, I've entitled it, Vengeance is Mine, because you're going to see this. We're going to conclude our saga today by going through the entire chapter, verse by verse, to this dramatic conclusion of David's path to the throne. Here's what 1 Samuel 24.1 says. After Saul returned from pursuing the Philistines, he was told, David is in the desert of En Gedi. So Saul took 3,000 able young men from all Israel, and he set out to look for David and his men 
near the crags of the wild goats. And you can just pause here. En Gedi was the perfect hideout for David. In fact, you can still visit the desert of En Gedi today. Let me show you some photos. This is in Israel. It's actually an oasis in the desert with waterfalls, carves that are, caves that are kind of carved out of limestone. It's right above the Dead Sea. And you can still visit these caves today. Take a look at them. These are the actual caves in En Gedi. You can see them pockmarked throughout the cliffside. They were the perfect hideout. It was a stronghold. It was above the enemy. They could see them coming from miles away. These are the caves that David and his men hid in. That's the inside. Some of them are large enough to hold thousands of people. That's where David and his men found refuge, in the rocks and caves of En Gedi. So I want you to imagine, David and his mighty men, they're all kind of hunkered down in the back of this cave, hiding from Saul. And it says, Saul's hunting them with an army of 3,000, so it's way outsized odds. He's got hatred burning in his heart. Now look at verse 3. It says this about Saul. He came to the sheep pens along the way. A cave was there. Let's just read this together. Ready? And Saul went in to relieve himself. Let's just enjoy this for a moment. Yes, it means what you think it means, okay? The Bible is very raw and real. You're in a desert, man. There ain't no Johnny on the spot, man. The king's got to go, okay? This is what Saul does. The king has to go to the bathroom. So I want you to imagine this, right? Saul gets off his horse. A cave is there. Saul goes in to relieve himself. Now watch. David and his men were far back in the cave, Yeah, I wonder what happens next, right? This is the perfect setup for the big twist in the movie, right? You've got a bloodthirsty villain hunting down the hero, and suddenly he goes into the cave to relieve himself. And this may be an impolite question, but do you think you had to go number one or two? What do you think? I'm going to ask you. I'm going somewhere with this. Follow me. Men, you know, right? If you had to go number one, would he have to go in a cave? No. If you're out in the woods, you just find a bush, you find a tree, whatever, right? But if you got to go number two, you want privacy, So I'm going somewhere with this. Just keep working with me. This is relevant. Listen, scripture. Saul enters this cave alone, unarmed. There is no security detail. He says, you guys wait here. I need a little privacy. I'm going to leave my spear. I'm going to leave my soldiers. I'm going to leave my horse out there. All Saul had on at this point likely was his sword belt. It says he went in to relieve himself. In other words, he puts down his shield. He unbuckles his belt. Puts it down, yeah, get ready. And drop, no, I'm not going to do that. What is wrong with you people, wicked people? And he pops a squat. You tracking with me? This is, he is totally exposed. He has his back to his enemy. Saul is totally vulnerable in the cave with David and his men behind him. If you ever want to test the heart of a man or a woman, whether they're led by the spirit or the flesh, ask him what they'll do when their enemy's back is to them. Because nine out of 10, they will strike every time. And this is what David's men actually say. The men said, this is the day that the Lord spoke of what he said to you. I will give your enemy into your hands for you to deal with as you wish. They're like sitting in the back. They're like, oh my goodness, here someone comes in. What's he doing? Oh, that dude, that's disgusting. Dude, it's Saul. <laughs> Holy crap, right? It's kind of <laughs> Here's your opportunity. The guy who's been hunting you like a dog is being hand-delivered. Dude, praise God. Take my knife, right? Nail him to the wall. That's how it goes. In every movie, it is guaranteed. I actually had a minor in film in college. Screenwriters call this the moment of truth, 
where the hero is finally vindicated and gets his revenge. And the audience goes, praise God, all right? There's a God in heaven, right? The hero wins, the bad guy gets what he deserves. There's just one problem. David didn't follow the script. Instead, he does something very strange. Then David crept up unnoticed, and let's read this together, cut off a corner of Saul's robe. Afterward, David was conscience-stricken for having a corner of his robe. And he said to his men, The Lord forbid that I should do such a thing to my master, the Lord's anointed, or lay my hand on him, for he is the anointed of the Lord. And with these words, David sharply rebuked his men and did not allow them to attack Saul. And Saul left the cave and went his way. You got to be kidding me. Talk about emotionally unsatisfying. I have been studying David's life for the last five weeks. And at every turn, just when I think, oh, I see what God's doing, right? I know what David's going to do. He does the exact opposite. God hand delivers his enemy into his hands. The guy who's been hunting you has his pants around his ankles. And the men are armed. And you sneak up behind him. And instead of slitting his throat, you slice up a part of his robe. Who does this? WTF, why the face? I don't understand. And I doubt his men were like, how noble of you, David. You really showed your courage there. I have a feeling it was like, how about us? We've been prisoners for 10 years. We've been on the run. You have a chance. God gives you the chance to free us, free you, free this whole nation. This guy tries to pin you to the wall and we can stab him in the back. Why did you end it? And they're suffering, David. And it says, David sharply rebuked his men and did not allow them to attack Saul. Quiet. You don't know what you're speaking about. Don't lift a finger against the Lord's anointed. What? Did, did, I just thought you called him the anointed. Then David went out of the cave and called out to Saul. My Lord, the king. And when Saul looked behind him, David bowed down and prostrated himself with his face to the ground. He said to Saul, why do you listen when men say David is bent on harming you? This day, you've seen with your own eyes how the Lord delivered me, you into my hands in the cave. And some urged me to kill you. But I spared you. I said, I will not lay my hand on my Lord. Because he's the Lord's anointed. See, my father, look at this piece of robe in my hand. I cut off the corner of your robe, but I didn't kill you. You see, there's nothing in my hand to indicate I'm guilty of wrongdoing or rebellion. I have not wronged you, but you're hunting me down to take my life. May the Lord judge between you and me, and may the Lord avenge the wrongs you've done to me. But my hand, my hand will not touch you. As the old saying goes, from evildoers come evil deeds. And so my hand will not touch you. Why didn't David kill Saul? That is the question God asks you and me every time we're given the opportunity to pay back an enemy. Why? The answer is very complex. 
But scripture gives us four reasons in this text why this was the defining moment that proved David truly was a man after God's own heart. I've lifted these four reasons in your notes. And the first reason is this. David feared God's anointing. Can we say that together? David feared God's anointing. A, that Saul had it, and B, that David might lose it. See, if you recall, David was anointed by the prophet Samuel, but guess what? Years earlier, so was Saul. In fact, let me show you something. This is how anointing worked in Israel. Saul was the first chosen king, and the prophet Samuel, in the anointing ceremony, put a crown on Saul's head. You know what the crown represents? His political position. This is the role, and you now have the authority to make decisions on behalf of the entire nation. That was the first part. But after the crown came the anointing oil that was poured on the forehead of the king and represented this is the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit in your life. You are now to make no decision apart from the Spirit of the Lord. And you are God's chosen representative to his people. That's what anointing oil was. And one day... 20 years before, 30 years before, Saul had been anointed. But now there was a dark side. He had grown mad with jealousy, blinded with anger, but David still remembered. Saul was God's anointed. He said, some urged me to kill you, but I spared you. I said, I will not lay my hand on my Lord because he's the Lord's anointed. This is a couple applications for you and me. First off, notice there's a difference between the outer anointing, the role that God has given you to play in building his kingdom, and the inner filling of the Holy Spirit. Saul was one of the greatest uh, figures in human history, honestly. I mean, he he founded a nation, the divided Hebrew people. He was baptized in the Holy Spirit. He actually prophesied. He preached when the Spirit came on him. He had talent. He had power. He had authority. Everything you expect a king to have. But inwardly, he was eaten alive by pride and jealousy. And he indulged his darkest motives. See, every follower of Christ has a shadow side. And every day we make decisions either to indulge the shadow side or stay in step with the spirit. And this is a cautionary tale for us Christians because Saul lived without the spirit for a very long time. In fact, check this out. How many years was David hiding in the cave? 10 years. For a decade, Saul sat on the throne and he kicked butt. He destroyed God's enemies, he built the kingdom, and nobody knew the spirit had left the building for 10 years. That's scary to you? In other words, it is possible for you, brother or sister, to use your outward gifts to serve the Lord and yet inwardly drift from his spirit. As Gene Edwards writes, there's a vast difference between the outward clothing of the spirit's power and the inward filling of the spirit's life. A person can be living in the grossest of sin and the outer gift will still be working perfectly. Saul was living proof of that. You ever see this in the real world? People who are outwardly talented but inwardly empty, bankrupt. That's why our generation is cynical towards politicians, isn't it? Towards presidents. Because we've grown up with leaders and kings who are, very, are brilliant you know, speakers. They may be skilled strategists and statesmen, brilliant politicians, and yet they make wildly reckless choices in their personal life. Like, I'm going to tweet a naked photo of myself. And you're like, what? I was reading this article recently about President Clinton, and it was kind of, actually, it was unbiased. It said, you know what? 
Whether you like him or not, and I'm not here to bash Clinton, they said he was easily one of the top five most skilled politicians ever to sit on the world stage. I mean, ever, across generations. They said when he would enter a room, he would already know 12 reasons that we were arguing an issue, and he would anticipate what everyone would say and say, I want to hear from people who disagree with me first. And they would say, we don't think you should do it for this, this, that, and reason. And then he'd say, well, here's five more besides that. But here's what I'm thinking. He was one of the most brilliant, skilled politicians. And yet, when his leadership council left the room, in walked a little perky intern, and it's like, what? Like the filter... And you remember, you're like, how could this happen? One of the most skilled, talented, gifted politicians. The guy ended up on the throne of power, the most powerful man in the world. And yet, no filter. (laughs) Don't judge. You and I have the same capacity. Every single one of us. As followers of Jesus Christ, it means that you and I are anointed with the Holy Spirit. Outwardly, God gives you certain gifts to build his kingdom. But inwardly, you must be filled fresh daily with the Holy Spirit. Unless, if you're going to minister out of the heart of integrity, not in your flesh. And what Saul teaches us is you can fake it. Think about this. You can fake it. You can sit in a position of authority and perform all the outward duties of your role. You can be a business owner who's blessed by God and make all sorts of money and you take advantage of your employees. You could be the spiritual leader in your house who leads family devotions, and yet you're harsh with your kids. Your heart's hard towards your wife. You could be a pastor or a group leader who teaches God's word publicly, but your private world is actually filled with lust or rage or jealousy. You spend enough time around churches or leaders in any kingdom or realm, and you will see men and women do some dark and ugly things, won't you? They sit on a throne But the Spirit has left the building, and no one notices, no one knows, except God. That's why David refuses to touch Saul. David feared God's anointing. He refused to do anything that might sever his connection to the Lord. And he realized, you know what? Because I'm going to sit on this throne one day. And if I indulge my shadow side right now, if I go eye for eye, flesh for flesh, I will lose my anointing just like him. He looked at Saul down in that cave and he said, that's going to be me. And you know what? I won't do it. Better I die than learn his ways or let bitterness grow in my heart or lose my anointing. Question for you. Are you in danger of losing God's anointing in some area of your life? I didn't say lose the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit indwells every believer. You can't lose the Holy Spirit. It can't be taken away. That's a seal, a deposit on your salvation. But we all face decisions in our life where we're either tempted to indulge our flesh or actually reconnect and realign with the Holy Spirit and keep in step with what God wants us to do. Scripture says don't quench the Spirit. Keep your heart sensitive. Don't harden it. That's the second reason David didn't kill Saul. David guarded his heart. He realized revenge is toxic. When you're hurting... Your heart is never more vulnerable. That's when you're open to infection because it gets cut. And you know what? The desire for revenge to get even is the most subtle temptation in all of life, Chuck Sundahl says. It may be with an employer who promised you something and they never came through on it, and you're like, man. It may be with a mate when you needed him or her the most, they walked away. It may be with your mom or dad and how they failed you. It could be with a friend that you entrusted intimate information 
and they not only told others, now they're actually telling lies about you. Or a coach or a teacher who, you know, who, who, who kind of, you know, they, they refused to hear you out and graded you down. And like, David, you live in the daily backwash of mistreatment. The desire for revenge is the heart's normal response to life in a broken world. But you know what the Bible says about revenge? It's toxic. Revenge is like drinking poison and expecting your enemy to drop dead. If you indulge it, you will live by the flesh rather than by the Holy Spirit. Romans 12 is the best cross-reference to this passage in the New Testament. I listed this in your notes this week. It really made an impact on me. I want to read God's word together. Let's read it. Ready? Here we go. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it's possible, as far as it depends on you, what? Live at peace with everyone. Now, we live in a culture of lawsuits. I get that in legal rights, so this kind of sounds impossible. Because if someone hurts you deeply, they cut you, you naturally want justice. You want payback. But God says, actually, I haven't anointed you to pay them back. I want you to be a peacemaker. Here's why. As a king, your natural instinct will be to do what kings do, which is you wage war. That's what the crown is about. You defend, you protect, you take on anybody who threatens you. But God says, I've anointed you, and I want you to steward whatever power I give you to be a peacemaker. I know it sounds impossible, but as far as it depends on you, you do your part, live at peace and trust me for your enemy's response. And that's what David did. David was like, I can't change Saul. I can't change his heart. I can, change, I can guard my own and keep it pure and say, you know what? I'm going to keep my hands clean. He realized evil for evil would just cause bitterness to grow in that wound and put a root down there. Let me ask you this. Is there somebody in your life who has wronged you? I'm guessing you've been thinking of them for a couple weeks now. That at times you have fantasized about what you would do to them. Or what you might, you know, oh, if I met him in a parking garage, what I would say. I shouldn't pick this up. That's a little bit over the top. Uh, <laughs> if you saw them in an elevator, and say, if I could just say this to them. If I could just, you know, I'm going to, I typed out the email. I've actually saved it in my draft folder, and I'm waiting. <laughs> Listen to me reconciliate, is it possible God's saying, I want you to reach out, and instead of retaliation, pursue reconciliation. Reconciliation requires that the Holy Spirit have full access to your heart. You have to surrender your heart to forgive someone. Forgiveness is a supernatural act, but it's the only way that you break the cycle of revenge or dysfunction in the relationship. Just ask Peter Goeski, who says they're a campus pastor in Nutley. What up, nutters? Um... Last week, God started talking to Pastor Peter. He actually woke him up in the middle of the night based on the series and asked him to reach out to an old enemy. My name's Peter. I've been a pastor for 12 years. You know, the funny thing is sometimes people think that because I'm a pastor, I don't have any problems or that I've got everything figured out. But my wife, Tiffany, and my kids, they know the real me. The other night, Something funny happened. I couldn't get to sleep. The thing is this though, like normally when my head hits the pillow, I'm out like a light. But I woke up at 11 o'clock and then I went back to sleep for a little bit and I woke up at midnight and I went back and laid there and then I woke up at 1.15 and I kept waking up and I couldn't get to sleep. So I figured God was trying to get my attention. <laughs> you know, the funny thing is I actually started praying, figuring that'll put me to sleep real quick. 
but God woke me up again. So I swung my legs out of bed and I said, God, what do you want me to do? And I felt like God was telling me to write a letter to someone from my past, someone I had conflict with. My first job was serving as a youth pastor in a small church in South Jersey. I loved working with the kids and it was a great community. But the senior pastor and I just didn't get along. It wasn't anything major. You know, he was older and I was younger, but he intimidated me. I was pretty insecure at that age and I actually used to get nauseous whenever I saw him on Sundays. But needless to say, it didn't end well. We both went our separate ways, but secretly, I've always resented him a bit for the way he treated me. So I got up and felt like God was telling me to write a letter of apology to my former pastor. I mean, which is kind of crazy because this was like seven years ago. But I kept thinking of how David honored King Saul and respected his authority even in the midst of a pretty toxic relationship. So I started typing. Dear Dan, I know we've both made mistakes, but I had to erase what I wrote. I felt God saying, don't point the finger at him. Take responsibility for yourself. So I told him I was sorry. Sorry for not supporting his leadership better. Sorry for not really understanding the burden he carried in his role as senior pastor. I didn't rehash the past or talk about any of the things I wished were different. I just owned my own stuff. Dear Dan, I'm writing to apologize for not supporting your leadership. I didn't appreciate the pressures and responsibilities you had, and I'm sorry for that. I hope you can forgive me. In Romans, Paul writes, if possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. All these years, I realized God was waiting for me to be a peacemaker. See, as a Christ follower, I realized God was waiting for me to resolve this conflict to do whatever I could to reconcile the relationship. At that moment, it was like a giant weight fell off my shoulders. It was so freeing not to nail my enemy to the wall for his shortcomings, but simply confess my own failings and to ask for his forgiveness. You know, my family and I, we still go down to the shore and sometimes I worry, what's gonna happen if I run into him at the bait shop or the deli? But I'm not worried anymore because I know as much as it depends on me, I've done my part. I'm not holding on to the hurt or pain anymore, but I'm keeping my heart pure before God. Sending that letter, it felt so good. I went back to bed that night and I slept great because I knew that I had done exactly what God was calling me to do. But here's the crazy part. I don't know how this is going to play out. I don't know if I'll hear anything back, but in some ways it doesn't really matter because the success of this has nothing to do with his response. This is about my obedience, to hear God's voice, to swing my legs out of that bed and take a step of obedience when God calls me to. I believe that Christ will honor that. We thank Peter for sharing his story with us. Grateful for you and your leadership in Nutley, Peter. You know, it's significant. You think God will honor that long term? You see, as, as far as it depends on me, I'm going to do my part, but I'm going to trust God to do his part. See, forgiveness is about freedom. It brings freedom. Forgiveness is setting the prisoner free and realizing 
I'm the prisoner. And I'm going to do everything, but I'm going to depend like God is going to create a response. That's the only way it happens with an enemy in your life. Listen to how Paul explains it in Romans. He says, do not take what? Revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath for it's written. It is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. That's the third reason David spares Saul. David trusted God to judge. And this is one of the hardest things we will be called to do as followers of Jesus Christ. Look what David says to Saul. He says, may the Lord, what? Judge between you and me. And may the Lord avenge the wrongs you've done to me. But my hand, I won't touch you. David was wronged. He wanted justice. David was hurt. He wanted vengeance. And maybe you do too. When somebody cuts you, the desire for vindication and vengeance is very real. In fact, it's normal. Dare I say healthy. Do you believe that? Did you know that? That God planted a desire for justice deep in your heart. It's one of the ways you're made in the image of God. And when one of God's children is hurt, God doesn't say, oh, just pretend it didn't happen. God doesn't excuse evil or sins committed against his children. He says, leave room for justice, but you need to leave the judging up to me. That's my job. And David actually trusted that God would judge as jacked up as his relationship with Saul was. He said, you're the only one who can avenge this. Only you can judge it. And watch this. He says, as the old saying goes, from evildoers come evil deeds. So my hand will not touch you. And he actually says to Saul, against whom has the king of Israel come out? Who are you pursuing? A dead dog? A flea? May the Lord be our judge and decide between us. May he consider my cause and uphold it. May he vindicate me by delivering me from your hand. Vindication is when someone is proved to be not guilty. Wait, they're not at fault. Saul at this point was, nobody knew if this was true or not. Saul was lying. He was slandering David's name. He had destroyed his reputation. He rallied the people against David. And David said, I trust one day God will prove, he will vindicate me. Only he knows the truth. The God of truth knows my heart. And only a God of grace can judge my enemy. David trusted God to judge. Can you? Will you? Do you? I know some of you are suffering. You've been emailing me. Someone's taking you to court. A business partner is suing you. A church split. Now there's gossip. You're in a lawsuit. Whatever it is. Listen, if you are suffering today and and someone is mistreating you, understand this. God will have the final word. Amen? Listen, it's the only way for you to live at peace in a broken world. It's Now, nobody's like, I don't like to talk about God being a God of judgment. It's only if you believe in a God of divine justice that there will be actually peace in your life because you have to believe that at some point God will address all of the hurts, the horrors, the outright lies will be exposed. And if you don't believe that God alone has a right to judge that, you won't resist taking it into your own hands. You're like, if I don't pay it back, who will? And guess what? You see a monster, you stab the monster, you are the monster now. David says, I trust God. May he consider my cause and uphold it, but I'm not going to lift his hand. I'm not going to sever my anointing. When you entrust that role to your heavenly father, God gives you a new role. Yes, you have a role to play. You don't just stand there with your hands in your pockets like, oh, I'm so sorry. Not at all. Listen, when attacked by an enemy, you know what God says to his children? I now have a vital role for you to play. I'd be the judge, but what's your response? Look how Paul finishes. If your enemy is hungry, what? feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. 
Praise God for the judo move of grace. (laughs) Grace is the undeserved blessing and favor of God. It's God's radical love and forgiveness in the wake of sin. That's why you're a Christian. This is what God did for you. By nature, you were an object of God's wrath. You were his enemy. And God says, I'm not going to judge you. I'm going to judge Jesus. And I'm going to set you in my family. I'm going to give you grace. And now I want you to be a grace giver. Grace is the most powerful weapon in the Christian's arsenal. It's transformational. Look at the impact it had on Saul. It says this, when David finished saying this, Saul asked, this is amazing. He just, it's like scales dropped from his eyes. Is that you, David? My son? And he wept aloud. What have I been, what have I done? You, you are more righteous than I. For you've treated me well, but I've treated you badly. You have just now told me about the good you did to me. The Lord delivered me into your hands, but you didn't kill me. When a man finds his enemy, does he let him get away unharmed? Who does that? May the Lord reward you well for the way you treated me today. Saul is cut to the heart by the Spirit of God. His conscience is pierced. It changes his heart. The sin of spell breaks. The the, the spell of sin. What smashed Saul's heart? David overcame evil with grace. Amen? He saw David's response and he felt convicted. That's the impact and the potential of grace on your enemy. When you don't return evil for evil, but instead give them something to eat or drink, it doesn't mean you're excusing their sin. You are loving your enemy in spite of their sin, just as Christ did for you. And in doing that, you know what it does? It strikes a blow to their conscience. It breaks the ice around their heart and maybe gives the Holy Spirit a chance to work. That's what that verse in Romans means. In doing this, you'll heap burning coals on their head. Most people assume that verse means like, oh, I get it. If someone's mean to you, be nice to them. That'll really burn them up, you know, like kill them with kindness. That's not what it means. In the ancient world, people carried coals on their head to bring it, to put in the fire in their home to keep their family warm. And the idea is when you respond with grace towards an enemy who's consumed by fear and hatred, the Holy Spirit may use that to break the ice and warm their heart and give reconciliation a chance. Only the power of grace, God's radical love, can change a heart. Isn't that what changed yours? Isn't that why you're a Christ follower? Because you actually saw Jesus hanging on the cross, sacrificing himself, and realized, oh my gosh, I was dead to God. And instead of pouring out his judgment and wrath on me, he forgave me. He set me in his family. He gave me the Holy Spirit. That's what a God of grace does. Amen? Saul is changed by grace. The spell breaks, and even he has to acknowledge the reality of the plan that God has been working all along. Look at the last two verses. Saul says, I now know that you will surely be king, and that the kingdom of Israel will be established in your hands. In other words, my reign of terror it's over. It's over. The dysfunction is over in God's people and in my kingdom. Fascinating. Because at that moment, he says to David one final request. Now swear to me by the Lord that you will not kill off my descendants or wipe out my name from my father's family. Fascinating. 
In Old Testament times, whenever a new king sat on the throne, his first official act was to order the execution of the former king's entire family. You execute their enemies, their sons, their daughters, their cousins, their grandpas, their relatives, so that family will never threaten my throne. And Saul says, could you spare my family now that you're king? I'm thinking at this moment, David's like in his rights to say, you know what, let's play it by ear. Let me give it a little bit of thought here. But instead, he bestows a blessing. Look what it says. So David gave his oath to Saul, his heart vow. And then Saul returned home. But David and his men went up to the stronghold. Instead of killing his enemy, David promises him, when I'm on the throne, I will never use my power and authority to do to you which you have done to me. I'm going to be a different kind of king. I'm going to learn from the season of brokenness that my Savior has had me in. And you know what? David said, I forgive you, Saul. I bless you. I bless your family. And he kept his promise. Saul, Saul, Saul eventually died. You know how he died? He committed suicide in battle because he was so haunted by fear and regret. And most of his sons were killed by Philistines, except for Mephibosheth. This was his grandson. He was a crippled boy. And when David took the throne, instead of casting Saul's grandson out of the kingdom, he said, I'm giving you a place at my table for the rest of your life. All of your days, you're going to sit at my table. I am going to come over, overcome evil with grace. Friends, that is a picture of what God has done for you through Jesus Christ. Amen? The gospel is sin makes us God's enemies, but because the king sacrifices himself on the cross, we're given a place in his kingdom forever. Jesus takes all our wrath and our judgment, and he gives us grace, but now to live in Christ's kingdom means you have to live by Christ's rules. What does Christ do? He offers grace and forgiveness to his enemies. Do you, Christ follower? That's what you call yourself, right? We're Christ followers. So now listen. If you truly have God's anointing, you will not pay back your enemies what they deserve. You will give them what they need more, radical love and forgiveness, and you'll offer reconciliation when they least expect it. That's how you overcome evil with good. Let me drive this home and make this super practical. I've been asking, is there a Saul in your life? Somebody who hurt or wounded you that God's asking you to forgive? And show grace to? My guess is you've been thinking the last couple weeks and you're like, oh, that's my Saul. Instead of revenge is the Holy Spirit saying, I want you to reach out and reconcile. Last week, God woke up Pastor Peter in the middle of the night and told him to write a letter of apology to someone who had hurt him years before. Is God prompting you to maybe make a phone call today? Or ask forgiveness when you get home? Or roll over in bed and say, I am so sorry. I, the Spirit's been talking to me, and I've been cut to the heart. I'm conscience-stricken. If God's Spirit is speaking to you, do not quench His Spirit. In Christ, you were given grace, and God says, now you become a grace giver. If Christ is sitting on the throne of your life, that's God's will for you. And I love what Peter said. Whether or not your enemy responds is almost irrelevant. Success isn't defined by the enemy's response. It's by your obedience as a follower of Christ. Amen? Let's do this. All our campuses, I want to take a moment to pray 
and give you a chance to pray. So would you just bow your heads for a moment? Often I will invite you to pray a prayer asking God forgiveness. But today I want to invite you to forgive somebody in your prayer. Maybe there's somebody who God has brought to mind over the last couple of weeks. There's a current situation or it's a past hurt. But the Holy Spirit has brought it to your mind and your heart today. The reason he's done that is because he wants to heal it. God wants to set you free today from that bitterness. And so I'm going to pray for a moment, and then I'm going to ask you to pray for that person that you're bringing to mind. Father God, thank you for your word. It penetrates to muscle and marrow, Lord, and lays open the motives of our heart. But God, we do so with confidence. We know you're a God of grace, and you can forgive us, you have, and you can heal us in Christ Jesus. And so that's what I ask right now. Father, as we bring these men and women to mind, we're bringing them to you so that we can release them to your justice. Right now, you can pray in your heart. You can simply say, Father, thank you for forgiving my sins in Jesus Christ. Thank you for grace. But my heart is hurt, and I want you to heal it. In Jesus' name, free me now from that bondage. I'm resentful of the way, just insert their name, the way so-and-so has treated me. Just call them to name, bring them before the Lord. But I trust you to judge And in the name of Jesus, I forgive them. I forgive them. They're forgiven. They're released. Tear up any root of bitterness buried in my heart right now. And give me the Holy Spirit of reconciliation. In the power and name of Jesus. Everyone said together, amen, amen. Thanks for listening to Liquid Church Media. If you were inspired or challenged by today's message, we hope you'll tell a friend. For more content, log on to liquidchurch.com or visit one of our campuses in the New Jersey metro area. Liquidchurch.com, where truth is relevant and grace wins.